Well, good morning, friends. For those of you that don't know, my name is Ryan, and I am the pastor here. Um, We are continuing our studies this morning on the Gospel of Matthew. We've been working through this for some time. And today I'm going to pick up where Rich left off a couple weeks ago, which is here in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. Now, this is, oh man, this is a tricky text. Okay, I don't know if you picked up on it in the reading, but there is so many like different lines that come out in it that you're just like, what? What does that mean? What are we talking about here? What is Jesus getting at? And I said to Jackie this week that these texts of Scripture are my favorite. It's, it's like a mystery that you're unboxing. You start it at the beginning, you read it, and you go, I got no clue what Jesus is talking about. And then you've got to do the work, you've got to do the study, you've got to pray, you've got to think it through. And by the end of it, you're like, oh, I see it. I get it. And it's so exciting for me. So you'll have to forgive the fact that I'm stoked to be here. I love this text of Scripture. um, And I'm excited to do it with you this morning. Here's the question I think I want us to start with. And I think it's what Jesus is getting at. What are you doing here? Why are you here today? This is rhetorical. You don't have to answer. But like, what did you come here for? What did you come to hear? What did you come to see? And what exactly is it that you're looking for? Like, why church? Why Jesus? Why spirituality at all? Why would you consider any of these things? What is it exactly that you're looking for. This is what Jesus is going to get at. Is that we are coming to these things with a cocktail of reasons. Everybody here has a different reason. Different problems, different resources that you're looking for, different tools you're hoping to find, or wholeness and health. There's things we have in common, but everybody's coming here with kind of a unique life story, and mix, and they've got different things that they're looking for. But if we're honest, we don't really know what we're looking for. It's a hodgepodge of like needs and frustrations and hardships. We know we need something. We know we need more. But what exactly do we need? I don't know that we know. The good news, and we're going to see this through the text, the good news is that there is somebody who knows. And that's Jesus. There's somebody who knows what we need, knows what's really going on, knows what's really going to help. And that's Him. So the good news is that I think you've come to the right place. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. But I think this is what we find ourselves doing in our daily lives. We watch a video, we read an article of some different spiritual leader or some um, you know, new way of thinking about things. And there's new, you know, old rituals that are now trendy and that people are into and supposedly helpful and practices that you hear about and you, you watch the video, whether it's a workout plan or a mindfulness exercise or whatever, you watch it. And then for a brief moment in the back of your mind, you go, I wonder if that would help. 
If I did that, would that work for me? That's this longing in humanity, I think, where we're going. It's not okay. I don't know if I can keep going. I need something for this. And so then we think outside of the practical and we start thinking, is there something spiritual I need? And for some people, that's a new concept. For some people, that's a well-worn path in their life. But all these roads, I think, lead to the question of Jesus. And so in the verses we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to use John the Baptist as a bit of a spiritual Rorschach test. You know what a Rorschach test is? You know, the ink blots, what do you see? What do you see? Jesus is essentially saying, this is what John the Baptist is. How did you respond to him? When you heard his message, what did you think? And that's going to show what you're really looking for. That's going to show what you needed most and, and how you responded to the coming of the gospel. So let's begin with verse 7 because we've got quite a bit of ground to cover today. So Jesus starts with this question. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? This is where John the Baptist does the whole of his ministry is in the wilderness. So he's proclaiming the coming of the kingdom, calling Israel to repentance, and he's doing so as this kind of crazy wild man out in the desert. He wears camel skin clothing, which is super comfortable and chic if you don't know. Uh, he lives on locusts and wild honey. So the dude's a wild man. Okay? And, he, and so in order to hear John's message, you've got to leave work. You've got to leave the city. You've got to make the trek. It's going to cost you at least a day or two, potentially. So it's, a, it's an investment. And crowds, thousands of people go out to hear John yelling in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, why? Why did you go? What were your motivations? What is it that you were actually looking for? And then he says, were you looking for a, a reed shaken by the wind? Essentially, did you go out looking for a culturally uncomplicated and agreeable person? Were you looking for a voice that would mix with everything about the way you're living and everything that, that was popular at the time? Or were you looking for someone who would simply parrot what you already think and you already believe? Were you looking for an echo chamber? Were you looking for someone who was willing to be pushed over by cultural pressures and the status quo? Or were you looking, did you go into the wilderness because you were looking for somebody different? Were you looking for confidence and conviction in their message? Somebody that didn't move when the wind blew. Because here's the thing, we want it. There's something in us that's like, this. everything about what we're doing, this world gone mad, is not actually all that enjoyable and all that helpful. And I don't think I want to keep doing it. So in the back of your mind, you're going, I want something different, don't we? Even to the point where we're like, there's some crazy dude in the desert yelling some stuff. I think we should go listen. Why else would you go? Then verse 8, Jesus goes on. What then did you go out to see? What were you expecting? A man dressed in soft clothing? Were you looking for someone cool or trendy? Some more pop culture? Somebody who would trend on social media? Or picking up steam as the new thing? 
You're not looking for that. Jesus goes in verse 9 and says, this is what you're looking for. Sorry. First he says, what that popular piece you're not going to find in the desert. They're going to be dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. Here's the point. You aren't going to find any of this popular stuff in the wilderness with the wild man. What, if you're looking for somebody in soft clothing and is popular, you're looking for a therapist to the rich and famous. John the Baptist is not that. John the Baptist singles out the rich and the famous and calls them out on their stuff. Verse 9, this is what Jesus says we're really looking for. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? And This gets us a little bit deeper. After years of God's silence and no prophets to be found in the land, weren't you looking for somebody who was actually sent by God and speaking for God? Not just man's wisdom, but something divine? Weren't you looking for something profound and different from the popular talking points and common tactics of this world? Didn't you actually want, in your heart of hearts, to be confronted by a prophet? Isn't this, what we, isn't this why we're here? Because we want a challenge to the status quo. We want better than what's on offer, don't we? He's saying, yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. And this is where Jesus is saying, not only did you want a legitimate prophet who who would challenge you and would confront you, but you want even more than a prophet. You were looking for the prophet promised. The prophet who would usher in a new way and would help prime you to receive a true and holistic salvation. You want a breakthrough. You want God's divine intervention. You want salvation. Real, meaningful change to this human life. Fair? Like if you are really push me, Dig down into my heart. What am I looking for? I don't just want a new workout plan. I don't want a new app that helps me deep breathe. I need like real change. Those things are bad things. But they're not enough, are they? We need more than that. Verse 10, Jesus goes on. This prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And this is what they actually got in John. Jesus quotes here the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak until John the Baptist. Isn't that wild? Okay, so 400 years of silence. The last word spoken is the prophet Malachi. I actually would recommend in the week ahead as we get ready for Advent, read the whole book of Malachi. It's not super long. And it's worth it just to hear what are the last things God says while they wait for the Messiah to come. 
Now, here's the three key points that we see in Malachi. Malachi is promising a messenger who would do these three things. Be a refiner's fire who will purify Israel, specifically the Levites, which are the priests, judge the sorcerers, the liars, the oppressors, adulterers, those who um, thrust aside the sojourner is the language, and those who do not fear God. So he's going to be a refiner's fire because he's going to say, let's be honest, things aren't okay, and there's a lot wrong, and it's not just the government, your participants. That's essentially the refiner. He's coming to say, there's evil in the world, and don't pretend it's just the other side and not your side. The second thing he does is prepare the way for the Messiah. Prepare the way for the Son of Righteousness, who shall rise with healing in his wings. And that the response to the Messiah coming, he says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Have you ever seen those happy, happy cows after winter? They get let out and they're like kicking their hooves. And you're like, oh, it's so cute. That's what Malachi is describing. That's the response to the Messiah. This is actually the appropriate response to the Messiah. So every Sunday, you should hear the gospel and go out of here kicking your hooves. Right? Like a calf coming out of the stall. So the third thing then that Malachi says is that the prophet will return Israel to God. So not only is John the promised prophet, Jesus also is saying he's the greatest person that has ever been born aside from himself. So John the Baptist, Jesus is saying, better than Abraham, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than all the kings, better than David, better than all the Old Testament patriarchs. Isn't that wild? So he's going, John the Baptist is legit. He's the real deal. And his righteousness is pure and thorough. And he's a very important figure in the whole sweep of redemption. Now, this would be a massive thing for Jesus to say to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, because they had a hard time with John. And they didn't know what to do with him. But just in case this information leads people to idolize John, missing the forest for the trees, Jesus then says this at the end of verse 11, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the least in the kingdom is united to Jesus himself. And based on their union with Jesus is even greater than John the Baptist. Isn't that wild? So when we read the whole Old Testament sweep, where we see how God treats the righteous and the unrighteous, and we see all this story, and then to go just by being united with Jesus, you're considered, the lowliest person in the kingdom is considered greater than John the Baptist because of their union with Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's enough good news in and of itself. And why is that? It's just because their trust unites them to God himself, not just a prophet. Now verse 12, Jesus goes on. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So Jesus says this statement to essentially describe what it has been like during John's ministry and now his ministry. Throngs of crowds have been clamoring after the kingdom. Essentially, they want in on John's message, 
and they want in on what Jesus is offering so intensely that Jesus describes it as the kingdom of heaven suffering violence. This, oh, this just came to me. This is the best analogy ever. This is crazy American Black Friday. That's what Jesus is describing. People see a deal and go crazy for it and do crazy things in order to get the deal. That's essentially how Jesus is describing how the lowly average person is responding to the Gospel. Isn't that rad? So they're elbowing, shoving, yelling, fighting for access to John's baptism of repentance and Jesus' healing and redemption. And Jesus says these desperate individuals are actually the ones who have laid hold of the kingdom. Look down on them all you want. Dismiss them as carnal and violent and pathetic even. But their panic and missing out and their unhinged pursuit of Jesus pays off. For they are the ones who get the baptism of repentance with John and they are the ones who are healed. All while the ultra-religious do what? Hang back. Unsure if they actually need to repent. They hear John's message of repentance and go, look, your ways suck. Sin is everywhere. You know you're not in hell. You know you're not whole. You know you're not able to do everything you're supposed to do. Repent because a new way is coming, a way of grace. And they hang back and they go, Am I that? Do I need to repent? Is it that bad? I'm holding my own. I'm keeping up. It's the losers who have a clear sense of themselves. Let's be honest. When you're losing and you've lost everything and it's bankrupt and everything you hope for falls flat, you see it honestly. You're like, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. I need a Savior. But those who are hanging on and are doing okay are in danger of missing out. That's what Jesus is saying. And when they see Jesus healing people and delivering them from evil, they're hanging back again, unsure if they actually need God's intervention. Jesus puts the nail in the coffin of their self-righteousness in verse 13 and 14. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. Basically, even if you're too blind to see John's significance because of his proximity to the Messiah, You should also know that his message is completely consistent with all of the prophets through the history of Israel. So Jesus is saying John and all the prophets are all saying the same sermon in different situations. And all the law is in agreement with John's message. And not only that, it's the very spirit of Elijah come in the flesh. Jesus is saying, you rejected the greatest of my prophets, the clearest, the purest, the most devoted, and now the most beloved, and you couldn't hear the good news. 
because you were so self-confident. Isn't that heartbreaking? These are the students of the Scriptures. These are the ones who have devoted their lives to knowing the Torah and the prophets and studying them and explaining them. And Jesus is saying, you have not heard a thing. Isn't that wild? Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because you need God's intervention to hear God's voice. You need God to give you the ears to hear the Gospel. See, John is not only the culmination of all the Old Testament prophets, but he's actually the spirit of Elijah come in the flesh. Here's how, the, here's how Malachi ends Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These are some of the final words of Malachi of the Old Testament. So these two verses, they've been subject to a lot of misinterpretation and misapplication. But what Malachi is saying is that the spirit of Elijah, so for those of you that don't know, Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. He's like most famous for his battle against the priests of Baal, um, where they do a test of divinity to go, they make a, two altars um, with a burnt offering and ox and stones. And then he says to the priests of Baal, pray to Baal, and ask him to send fire from heaven to burn up this altar, and then I'll pray to Yahweh, and we'll see who answers. A few weeks ago, I taught this scripture to our older kids in that room. Um, it's a fun text to look at, because he trolls the priests of Baal the whole time. And he's like, maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe your God's out of town. And then he goes, maybe your God's on the toilet. It's like all these, it's like totally teasing them. And he's like, where is he? Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you've got to wake him. And so they're cutting their bodies and they're trying to get Baal to answer. And then he says, pour water on my sacrifice and I'll pray to Yahweh. Simple prayer to Yahweh and fire comes from heaven. So Elijah's like a big deal. Okay? But Elijah doesn't die. He actually gets taken up into heaven by chariots of fire. Not the film actual chariots of fire. And the message of Malachi is that he's going to return this prolific figure, and he's going to turn the hearts of Israel, the children, back to their forefathers. Abraham, the prophets, Moses, the law, all of the scriptures. So he's saying Elijah, John the Baptist, will bring the heart of the people back to the actual message of the Old Testament, and the heart of the prophet's message. And how is he going to do that? He's going to prepare them for Jesus with a message of repentance. The message of repentance is this. You've got to be honest that things aren't working. You've got to be honest that you're in pain. You've got to be honest that you're missing the mark and you're sinful even though you want to do good. You've got to be honest that something's wrong and we need a solution. Christians should be the most honest people in the world about the reality that we live in. Hear me? So he's saying, be honest about it. 
and prepare because the solution is coming. That's the message and ministry of John the Baptist. Return to Yahweh. A new way is coming. The way of the Lamb. But you must turn away from the other things and turn to Him. Is that how the religious leaders of that time responded? No. Instead, this is how Jesus describes their response. You still with me? Verse 16 and 17. But to what shall I compare this generation? What a great question. I I want to know that answer for our generation. Uh, I think the media um, divides the generations up too much. It makes it like somehow we're all these separate entities. But the reality is we're in this together. There's differences, sure, in age, and I get that. But like we together are this generation. And here's what Jesus says. It's like, chi- it's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Here's the analogy. It's as though Jesus has come and sat in the marketplace, which is the hub of their life, and played the flute. Jesus is saying, I came and played the flute. Why is Jesus saying He came and played the flute? He's saying, I came and my ministry is primarily joyful and celebratory songs. That's how Jesus is describing His ministry. Because what's His message? God is here. God is love. God is merciful. God is your Redeemer. God is your healer. And the kingdom has come and you can lay hold of it. Is that good news? Does that sound like a party? And then Jesus says, but you did not dance. What a profound statement. All this good news is here and you're hanging back and you're not taking it. All this party has started, essentially, Jesus is saying, and you're not with me celebrating. You're you're blocked up and numb and reluctant to have joy. Then he goes on to say, John came singing a dirge, a poem or elegy of grief. For sin, for suffering, for pain, for evil, for the destruction. And you you didn't mourn with Him just like you didn't dance with me. So Jesus is saying, look, we've got two options here. The Gospel comes in two different songs. It comes as a dirge of mourning. This world is broken and we can feel it. Who has mourning inside of them? Who's got sadness about the state of the world? Who's got pain about the state of their own life and their own family and their own situation? Is it just me? We've got reason to mourn if we're honest with our human self, don't we? So there's deep mourning. And you can feel it, you can touch it. And so when John comes with a message to say, God hears you, Turn from this brokenness because his, his new way of salvation is coming. What should the mourning heart do? 
it should weep. It should weep with relief to go, finally, someone's saying it. Finally, someone's letting us be honest about this. And finally, someone's saying that there's a solution for this. So the right human soft-hearted response to that message is to mourn and weep. Because we've all got it, don't we? And then, then the promise comes and is fulfilled in Jesus. And some people have a hard time because they go, he doesn't sound like John. He's not in the wilderness and he's wild. Instead, Jesus is like soft. And Jesus is empathetic. And Jesus meets you in that pain, but then gives you healing. And Jesus redeems you from darkness. And Jesus brings you into the light. And Jesus says there's hope. And there's freedom. And there's life. And that He works. And what does that do to the crowd? They, they're elated. They see light break through darkness and win. Isn't that fun? And so there's an, an eruption of joy in the same people that ran to John are now running to Jesus and finding the answer. You see the tones of the Gospel? Is that the Gospel of Jesus can go deep and dark and hard and it can go all the way to heaven in joy. And Jesus is saying, you heard them both. And they, neither of them resonated with you. Neither of them were a song you could join. That is a terrible place to be. If, if, that, if neither of those things move you, then you are married to the problem at work in the world. That's what Jesus is saying. And you need a massive intervention. And here's how that way thinks. So verse 18, Jesus says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, because he's in the wilderness. And they look at him and they go, He has a demon. Think of the pure pessimism of that numbness of heart that just goes, That's Crazy. He, he must be demon-possessed. Then, verse 19, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, throwing parties with Matthew. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, unpure and disgusting. Turn their nose up at Jesus. Isn't it wild? So that pessimistic, numb, self-sufficient heart looks at the problems of the world and goes, it's not that bad. And looks at the joy of the Gospel and says, let's not get carried away here. And it's putrid. You want to go to church like that? But Jesus is saying, for those who have ears to hear it, the Gospel will be the sweetest relief to your suffering soul. And you will leap like calves in joy when you see that it actually works. Isn't that beautiful? So I think it leaves us with a final question. Why? Why? If any part of our hearts are hanging back 
from true, unreserved trust in Jesus. Why? Why? What are you holding out for? What am I holding out for? If I'm avoiding the problems, why? So I can fix them myself? If I'm avoiding the joy, why? Because my life is somehow so joyful without Jesus? Why would we hold back from a Gospel this good? That's what Jesus is saying. And if you need some proof for it, He goes on with verse 19 and ends like this, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is going to weigh them. Compare it. Compare dead, numb-hearted religion to the, the depth and the heights of the beauty of the kingdom. Compare it. Which deeds most justify their message? Does the deadness of religion prove itself by its deeds? Does it? Never. But does the sheer depth and joy of the Gospel prove itself? Does it justify it by its deeds? It sure does. It's profound, isn't it? So here in this problematic problematic text at first reading, Jesus is cutting to the absolute heart. And we're going to see this in the coming texts that keep coming through 11 to 12. Jesus is now rubber hitting the road conversations with people. To go, you've seen how good it can be. You've heard what's on offer. You've heard the invitation to repent in safety. Not repent in fear. Not repent because God's going to destroy you, but to repent because God is offering to heal you, to help you, to make you whole. Why are you holding back? So as we prepare our hearts for the table, I think we've got to ask a couple questions. So if you're comfortable with it, you can just close your eyes for a second. We're going to take our time for a minute. The first thing I want you to ask of yourself is, what are the problems I'm avoiding? And why am I avoiding them? And what's What's the unreserved, like giving of my whole life to the joy of the gospel? Why am I hesitant to do that? Because I think here's what we're going to find. Whatever parts of us that are holding on, refusing to talk about the problem, and refusing to give ourselves to joy, that's the part of us that still thinks we have to do it ourselves. That's the part of me and the part of you that says, 
I've still got to fix this. And I don't want to talk about what's wrong because I'm working on it. And I can't give myself to joy because I don't deserve it. And so you're stuck in this place of working, being emotionally numb, and losing who you are. And you can feel your heart cracking and crumbling under the weight of that. And John and Jesus come with a message saying, it's okay to not be enough. You can be honest about the fact that there's problems. Repent because salvation is here. Repent because God has come for you. To know you, to understand you the way you wish to be. And to die for you that you might be saved from the evil of this world. To forgive you, to heal you, to mend you, and to resurrect you, to restore you, recreate you according to the good and the beautiful design that was always there for who you are. That you were made for goodness and righteousness and purity and strength and blessing and benefit for the world. You're gifted and called, empowered, that there's a joy on the other side of death. That when your death is with Christ's death, you get to be a part of it. There's hope. There's a cause. There's a future. There's a life beyond the brokenness of this world that God has made you for of rejoicing and dancing and celebrating. The question is, are you ready?